This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Experiencing what I did caused me to see other people in a new way, especially because I was trying to share my story with people who hadn't experienced gun violence for themselves and say, here's my story. Here's what happened to me. Can you care about this with me? Can you care about this with me? And I want to I want to share this with you and give you a window into what this was like. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Taylor Schumann. She's the survivor of a 2013 shooting at a college in Christiansburg, Virginia. She's a writer and activist whose work has appeared in Christianity Today, Sojourners, and Fathom. She's a contributor to If I Don't Make It, I Love You, Survivors in the Aftermath of School Shootings. She now is a passionate advocate for gun control. She works to affect positive change, and it is her hope that apathy turns into action and that distance between people of differing viewpoints can turn into common ground. She writes and works to create a better future for her own son, Henry, and the children of his generation. Today, we're talking about her recent book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. Taylor Schumann, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place. You're on your honeymoon. You're with your husband. You're in Florida. You've gone to Disney World, but you haven't gone to many of the rides. And in fact, one night you decide instead to go to a Cirque du Soleil circus event. And as you're sitting in the audience, the lights dim and a performer comes on and starts to point out the various exits in the theater. And I was very struck by what you wrote. You said, I didn't need the exits pointed out to me. I would be looking for the escape routes for the rest of my life. And that, to me, is a very striking place to start our conversation. Uh, I want to get into why you were at Cirque du Soleil, but I really want, first of all, for you to talk a little bit about that moment where you realized that from that moment on, you would always be checking the exits. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we had gone to this performance of Cirque du Soleil, and before it started, as the crowd was settling into their seats, someone from the audience screamed, like this very loud shriek, and I almost immediately went into a panic attack, and then it was revealed that 
this person was part of the performance and ran up to the stage and started pointing out the various exits of the the auditorium, like you said. And so the whole thing was that this person was trying to get the attention of everyone in the audience so that they would understand the sort of presentation of where to go in the event of an emergency. And for me, people were laughing about it once they found out that it was a performer and not someone randomly screaming. And I was mad about it. It really scared me. To me, finding the exits wasn't something that should be funny or laughed about. And I couldn't help but think that for most of the people there, they weren't feeling the same way I was. They weren't really paying attention to where the exits were. And for them, it was probably something, oh, we won't need these. But for me, I knew that there's always a possibility that you need the emergency exit and you'll want to know where they are when you do. Well, and maybe this is a time to begin to talk about why you had that sense that you would always need to know where the emergency exits are and why you took this much more seriously than others did. And the reason is because you had just a few weeks before sitting down in that theater at Cirque du Soleil, you had been part of a horrific event that involved gun violence where you were injured. And I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah. So in April of 2013, I was working at a community college in Christiansburg, Virginia, and a student walked in to the school um, near where I was at the front desk in the lobby area, and he pointed a, a shotgun at my head and my coworkers. And thankfully, I had time to move into a supply closet that was behind my desk. When he saw me running in, inside the closet, he turned around and shot me through the door. So the bullet went through the door, through my left hand, and sent shrapnel and, and shards of wood into my chest and my face and my eye. And I, I was inside the closet for about five minutes. During that time, he fired various shots and struck one other student twice. She survived as well. And yeah, after about five minutes of assuming I was going to die and just sitting in pain and really wondering what was going to happen, um, an off-duty security guard who heard about the shooting on his police scanner drove to the school and came inside and got the shooter to surrender his weapon. Someone had called 911. Well, a few people did when they saw this person walking into the school with a gun. And thankfully, EMTs arrived pretty quickly, and I was able to go to a hospital. I was then transferred to a second hospital that could better um, care for me and my needs, and I was rushed into surgery, and thankfully, they were able to save my hand. And yeah, that's the, the beginning of the journey. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're speaking with Taylor Schumann. She's a survivor of the April 2013 shooting at a college in Christiansburg, Virginia. She's a writer and activist whose work has appeared in Christianity Today, Sojourners, Fathom, and, and in other places. Today we're talking about her recent book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. You mentioned that the entire event took only about five minutes, but... 
I want to ask you how it felt, how the time felt while you were in it. Did it feel like five minutes? Because in my experience, sometimes I'll look up and five minutes will have gone by and I will have hardly noticed. It doesn't seem to me that's the way the time passed for you when this was unfolding. No, it definitely felt like an hours long ordeal. I remember when, when I got out and was riding in the ambulance, I asked someone how long I had been in there, how long. And I think the EMT had spoken to the police officer and they said it was about five minutes and I couldn't believe it. I think the thing that struck me most was how many thoughts and how many things you are able to think through in such a short period of time when everything feels chaotic and when you're not sure what's going to happen and you are really feeling near death. I thought through so many scenarios and so many things that that five minutes felt like it had taken hours. And you mentioned that the the bullet struck your hand and you said, luckily, you were able to keep your hand. But I think listeners also need to know that you don't have a lot of mobility in your hand. And in fact, there have been a number of surgeries and invasive procedures to try and help to regain what little mobility in your hand you could get. But if you could talk a little bit about that as well. Yes. So I've had four surgeries on my hand. I'm probably looking at a fifth here in the next couple of years. I've had a bone graft and nerve repair and many things that you could imagine. But now I I have about 20% use of that hand. I have a lot of nerve damage on one side of my hand where the bullet initially came in, just damaged a, a nerve line there. So I deal with a bit of chronic pain most days something hurts at least a little bit and it can be hard to navigate how to do things. Thankfully, over the past eight and a half years or so, I've managed to figure out how to do a lot of the things I have to do on a daily basis, but I still need help and um, still have to really think through how I'm using my hand so that I don't do too much if I feel good and then it'll hurt more later. There's a lot of sort of emotional and mental energy that is spent when you have a disability like that, just figuring out what can I do and how can I do it and when will I need help and who is available to help me. So all those things can be almost as exhausting as the physical limitations themselves. And you mentioned that this ordeal took about five minutes of clock time. If you were to look at a stopwatch, it's not a lot of time. And and yet, I, I want to delve into a little bit about how those kinds of events that maybe unfold over just a short amount of time, what they can do to a person's psychology, how they can affect the way that a person looks at the entirety of life. And so part of what I'm asking you about now is post-traumatic stress. And for listeners that may be unfamiliar or may think to themselves, well, five minutes is not a lot of time, How much beyond the physical damage, how much damage could be done? Would you be willing to tell us a little bit about how those five minutes began to affect the way that you looked at the world, the way that you related to other people, even to spaces? Yeah, I think for me, I was trapped in this closet that didn't have any windows. I couldn't see into the school. I couldn't see what was happening because of the the type of room it was. I could not really hear much except the gunshots. And there's this very special type of fear you experience when you 
can only hear gunshots and you can only hear something that could kill you. And when you're trapped, I didn't have a phone. I couldn't lock the door from the inside. It could only be locked from the outside. And it was a feeling of powerlessness and helplessness. So now I I have a really hard time being in an enclosed space. If I go to a restaurant or somewhere like that, I have to sit facing the door. I want to know who's coming in. I want to know who's going. I want to see what they look like. It's to the point now where most of the people I spend time with know we just, if we go into a restaurant, Taylor needs a seat facing the door. It's just a subconscious thing now. Loud noises are are scary to me. Loud bangs, loud booms. Even now I, I have a, a almost three-year-old boy and he likes to be loud and he likes to slam things down. And those noises still disrupt me and take me back to that moment. And within that five minutes, I thought I was going to die. I had resigned myself that I wouldn't make it out. I knew I was losing a lot of blood. I didn't know how to help myself very much except lift my hand above my head, try to stop the bleeding, try to put pressure on it. And so I was saying goodbye by myself to the people I love. And my fiance at the time, who was just a couple minutes up the road from where I was. And there is a deep emotional pain you experience when you're just waiting to die. And that was something that has affected me since just feeling that because there was a moment I was, you know, really praying to God, like, I just take me quickly. If you're going to take me, just please take me. It's just too painful. And so to, to people who might wonder how five minutes can affect your life so deeply, I have similar questions about it because there is some anger afterwards where you're thinking, wow, this one five-minute period of my life changed everything. How is that possible? And and what I would say is that a lot of life can be lived in five minutes. A lot of experiences can be had in five minutes, and it can shape you and affect you for the rest of your life. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Taylor Schumann. She's a survivor of the April 2013 shooting at a college in Christiansburg, Virginia. She's a writer and activist whose work has appeared in Christianity Today, Sojourners, and other publications. She's a contributor to If I Don't Make It, I Love You, Survivors in the Aftermath of School Shootings. Today, we're talking about her recent book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years worth of these kinds of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. 
Our guest today is Taylor Schumann. She's a survivor of the April 2013 shooting at a college in Christiansburg, Virginia. She's a writer and activist whose work has appeared in Christianity Today, Sojourners, and other publications. She's a contributor to If I Don't Make It, I Love You, Survivors in the Aftermath of School Shootings. Today, we're talking about her recent book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. In our first segment, we talked about some of the details of the attack that you survived, the five minutes that really radically changed your life and changed the life of others who were caught in that shooting situation. And we talked about some of the physical and emotional damage that lingers with you. The You have 20% use of your hand now and also the post-traumatic stress that you live with every day and that affects the things going on with you. One of the things that really struck me as you were reflecting on this in your book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, is you began to think about this in terms of what Paul said about the body of Christ, and that oftentimes we can think about someone in our community as maybe not being so important. So we hear about a gun violence victim on the south side of Chicago, and we may think about that differently than, and I'm speaking now as a white person who's grown up with white media, we may think about that differently than when we hear about a white child being shot in a school. And one of the arguments that you make is from the evidence of your own body, when your hand is injured, it affects the entirety of your life, the way that you think about yourself, the way that you think about your body. And you flip this around and you say, and this is what Paul was saying about the body of Christ. That struck me so much, but I'd love if you could say a little bit more about that for my listeners. Yes, I would love to. Yeah, I think that in America, the way gun violence is covered, we have become used to hearing about gun violence from certain areas of the country, cities, especially Chicago, which is often used as a weapon on either side of gun control debates, statistics about Chicago. And it's very easy to forget that every statistic is a number. We don't hear their stories. We just hear, oh, there were such and such victims of gun violence this weekend, or this many victims of gun violence. And it's easy to forget. Those are people and they have families and the effects of that gun violence ripples out into every community. And what is that doing? It's weakening the community because now we have one person hurt from gun violence. That person has a family. Maybe they have a job. Maybe now they've lost their job. Now that family has lost their source of income. The ripples that go out from gun violence just weaken us and weaken us and weaken our communities. And we don't really think about that. And that's how I think if we look at it through the lens of the body of Christ, how it has a role, each of us is important to strengthening the body of Christ and and the kingdom of, of God here on earth. And if one of us is hurting, if one of us is harmed, how does that affect the body of Christ? It makes it weaker. If one part is hurting, it ripples out and those other parts will be hurting too. And so until we start to see each community each person, each soul as part of our national body, if you will, we're always going to have parts that are hurting. And eventually, I think we have to confront the idea that that we're playing a part in that. We are we're allowing it to continue. And I, I think that's one of the parts that's so hard to stomach about gun violence and, and maybe our lack of action on this issue is that we know it's happening. We know it's hurting people and harming people. And many people have just resigned to to let that continue because it's happening somewhere else, not in my community, not in my part of town. 
but it is affecting you. And I, I hope that by hearing stories from people who are living that, that's how we connect with people. And like you said, I'm speaking about this as a white middle-class woman who lives in a, a safe part of town where I live. And so I think part of my role as someone who has experienced a very specific type of gun violence, which was a school shooting, which is something you will hear about on the news. It's my job to remind people, hey, you think this is bad? Uh, Look at what's happening in your community right now. Look at how many people are affected by gun violence in your community. It's all important. We need to pay attention to all of it. This reference to the Apostle Paul is not a one-off in your book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough. You are bringing a kind of theological reflection, a kind of Christian worldview into the entirety of what's going on in your book, both when you're telling your own story in the first half of the book and when you when you then shift in the second half of the book to talking more about statistics and what can actually be done about the rampant uh, explosions of gun violence that we have to live with every day. I wonder if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about what your religious upbringing was like. Who was the God that you knew prior to April of 2013. Yeah, I I grew up in a Christian home. I have parents that love the Lord and taught me and my sister to to love the Lord. And we grew up in church and kind of doing all those things. And while I, I had experienced some hard things in my life, nothing like this, nothing incredibly traumatic. I hadn't really lost anyone very close to me before. And so the God that I knew was essentially a, a God of, of comfort and good times. Someone I would pray to and give thanks to for providing and keeping me safe and helping me through my hard days. After the shooting, I really quickly had to learn about God as a God of suffering, a God that's over suffering, a God that is near to the brokenhearted, as the Psalms say, and learn about this God and how this God would take care of me and how this God could be real when I feel so hurt and so alone and so forgotten many times. Thankfully, I experienced God in a very real way the day of the shooting. You know, I've talked to other people who've been through really scary things like that, and there is a closeness oftentimes that you feel to God in those circumstances that just can't really be replicated at any other time in your life. And so for me, even on days when I thought, wow, it would just be easier to not believe in God because I have so many questions about what I went through, what I had to go through, what I'm experiencing now, but I can't let go of God because he is so real and he was so real to me in that moment and and he won't let me go. And the result of that too was really seeing other people differently as well. My eyes were so opened to people that had been through things that I could never imagine because now I knew the same God that they had to believe in, that they knew. And it really opened my eyes. You know, I love, there's a a song and some of the lyrics say, you know, break my heart for what breaks yours. And I feel like what happened to me truly did help break my heart to see what breaks the heart of God and, and to see people that he sees. So yeah, my faith has been transformed in a way that I couldn't have foreseen, but now I am incredibly grateful for. 
I, I want to ask a follow-on question because I can imagine that some of my listeners would have heard your response one way and some listeners would have heard it another way. So when you said that before April 2013, you had a God who mostly was a God of comfort, and then afterwards you had a, a kind of connection with God who was a God of suffering, I imagine that some listeners might say, well, yeah, because before 2013, you had an idol, a false god, and then after 2013, you had the real god. I heard your response in a slightly different way. I heard it instead as, you know, I have I have a lot of friends in my life who, as we have gone through the decades together, have shown me different sides of themselves. And maybe I have a good time buddy who, when the chips are down, suddenly turns and shows me how resilient they are, how sympathetic, empathetic, comforting, how resourceful they are. I see different sides in a relationship. That's the way that I heard it. But I'm wondering, which way did you mean it? Did you have a false God before and now you've got the real God? Or is it more that you saw more facets of God as this event unfolded? Yes. Thank you for asking that follow-up question. I definitely meant it the way that, that you took it. I didn't know that God because I hadn't had to before. My faith in God was very real and very sincere. And the foundation of my faith I think is what helped me so much in the aftermath of the shooting. I knew God and, and loved him, but it's like you're saying, until you see th- that side of someone, how can you know that side? And so for me, that's sort of what that was. I I don't think that I was believing in a, a false God or a prosperity gospel type of thing. But for me, I could see that God for other people, other people who I knew who had experienced really hard things and see their faith lived out and how God comforted them. So I I could see that for other people, but I hadn't yet experienced that for myself yet. And so that brought me closer to that side of God and those truths about him. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Taylor Schumann. She's a survivor of the April 2013 shooting at a college in Christiansburg, Virginia. We're talking about her recent book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. Just a moment ago, you said something that I want to circle back to. You said that there's a way of looking at God, that God will break your heart so that you will have a heart for the brokenhearted. And I'm paraphrasing it, and you said it better. But I'm wondering what that dynamic is like in real time. When you say that you have been awakened to a different way of seeing the suffering of other people, can you flesh that out for us a little bit? How did your perspective about the suffering of others change in the wake of April 2013 and the violence that was done to you? Yeah, one thing was that I really became intimately acquainted with how, you know, one experience, one thing that happens to you can change the rest of your life. And it gave me a new empathy for people, all different kinds of people, experiencing what I did caused me to see other people in a new way, especially because I was trying to share my story with people who haven't experienced gun violence for themselves and say, here's my story. Here's what happened to me. Can you care about this with me? Can you care about this with me? And I want to, I want to share this with you and give you a window into what this was like. And I realized during that time, wow, I don't know that I'm listening to enough stories from people to try to understand what their life is like, what they're going through. And so my posture towards people changed and I started realizing, 
oh, I don't know a lot about maybe immigrants or refugees. Wow, I don't know a lot about racial inequality in this country, the history of that. I don't know about these things. I've never had to know about these things. And it really taught me to pay attention and to try to learn everything I could and listen to people and empathize with them and put myself in a position to feel their pain and find a role in how to make our world better, how to play a role in finding justice for these different issues. And yeah, it just, it really taught me so much about seeing people around me and seeing the injustice in the world and taking up a role in creating a better place to live, more equitable place to live to where we're all willing to feel a little bit of the pain that someone else might be feeling, even if our experience is totally different. You're talking about listening intently to the lives and experiences of those who have suffered and who have been broken by the violence of the world and learning to have empathy for that. But there's another kind of learning to listen that you talk about in the book as well. You grew up in a very gun-positive culture. Your father is a gun owner, and as you, you point out at several points in the book, a responsible gun owner. And I'm wondering how you had to relearn listening to that culture and listening within that culture as a result of your own experience with gun violence? Yeah, like you said, my my dad owns guns and a lot of my family members do. I grew up in a part of the country where guns are just a normal part of life for hunting, self-defense, you know, kind of all those areas. And I myself used to be very pro-gun and very pro-Second Amendment. Didn't really support any type of gun control. I didn't really know much about it. I just had decided that I believed gun control was always a bad thing. And I didn't really take the time to to understand it. And as my beliefs around that shifted, I would start having conversations with people who are really pro-gun, really pro-Second Amendment. And I realized like I was in a unique position to talk to those people because I used to believe the same things. And I could so easily say, yeah, I used to believe that too. And then I learned about this. I learned this fact. What do you think about that? And more often than not, there was at least a little bit of common ground found between me and the other person. And my dad and I have had some really great productive conversations because I will just say things that he doesn't know and say, wow, yeah, this, I, I remember teaching him about what we refer to as the Charleston loophole, where if a background check doesn't come back within three days, that firearm seller is allowed to proceed with the sale, even if they don't have the background check back. And I would tell him about various shootings that have happened as a result of, of that loophole. And he didn't know about that. And once I told him, I said, yeah, I mean, we could really fix that with a law that would close that loophole. And he totally supported that. I think that often we, especially now, we see so many areas where we're all just yelling at each other and feeling really polarized. But more often than not, if we can both come to the conversation thinking the best about the other person, assuming they care about the same thing you do, even if they come to the conversation differently, I really think more often than not, we're going to find a little bit of common ground, maybe not right then in the moment, but we give each other things to think about, new frameworks 
to view things like gun violence through. And hopefully we, we plant little seeds that can grow in, into even more common ground down the line. And it can be really hard. I don't always love engaging in these conversations, but it's so important. That's the way things change. One of the things that struck me about your book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, is that you say that you started out as a person of faith and that even though your faith was profoundly changed, you never lost your faith. And so we've been talking about having difficult conversations, particularly with people with whom we might disagree or who might not see the world as we do or might not have empathy with your experience as a gun violence survivor. How have you seen... I don't even know what to call it. God, the Holy Spirit, the divine. How have you seen that at work in the conversations, particularly the difficult conversations that you've been having? Oh, that's such a great question. I think I used to be so afraid to have these conversations because I didn't feel like I knew enough. I was so afraid someone would ask me a question that I didn't know the answer to, and then I would lose all my credibility, that it would just be too much. I'd be out of my league and and wouldn't be able to really have an effective conversation. And I think God has been very kind to me to show me that it's okay not to have all the answers and that it's okay to come to a conversation with a posture of humility. It's okay to say, oh, I actually don't know the answer to that question. I can try to find out. It's okay to say, you know, I don't know everything there is about gun violence. I don't know everything there is about gun reform, but I know that too many people are suffering and I know that I want to try to save lives. That's okay to have that posture. And I think as someone who struggles with a sense of pride and looking good and looking like someone who has it all together, that is something that I think the Holy Spirit kind of brings to me in these conversations is a reminder that it's really not about me. It's about doing this work that that God is calling me to do and um, to believe that each time I step into that role, God is giving me the ability to do that and, and the wisdom to model even things like the fruits of the Spirit well to other people who might disagree with me. And I'm really thankful for that because I think if I always tried to do that in my own human power, I would fail. And I do try to do it sometimes like that. I am not perfect in that way at all. And I can always tell when I'm relying on myself a little bit too much. And yeah, so I think there's definitely a role that God, the Holy Spirit is playing when I enter into these conversations. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Taylor Schumann. She's a survivor of the April 2013 shooting at a college in Christiansburg, Virginia. She's a writer and activist whose work has appeared in a number of different publications. Today, we're talking about her recent book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. 
one click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years worth of these kinds of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Taylor Schumann. She's a survivor of the April 2013 shooting at a college in Christiansburg, Virginia. She's a writer and activist whose work has appeared in Christianity Today, Sojourners, and Fathom. She's a contributor to If I Don't Make It, I Love You, Survivors in the Aftermath of School Shootings. Today we're speaking about her recent book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. I just have to say, as a reader and as a person who has lived through some violence in my own life, the first half of your book was both gripping and it took me places. I, I really felt in my chest, in my body, I got sweaty, I got chills at certain points because you do such a good job in plain language of just telling it like it is, not just what the event is, but what the aftermath of the event is like. And then in the second half of the book, you shift and you say, and now that you've heard my story, here's what I want you to do about it. (laughs) And one of the things that struck me about that second part of the book, because you go through and talk about some of the myths and some of the counter arguments that we sometimes hear, and then you lay out how you would address those arguments, but you say something in the midst of that that stuck with me. You say, what I've learned is that when I get into a conversation like this, I'm not going to solve the problem of gun violence with this one conversation. And so that's where I want to start this last part of our conversation with that realization that you're not necessarily going to change not only somebody's mind, but the entire problem. And so I have to ask you, why bother? Yeah, that's a good question. I was actually thinking about this yesterday because there was a actually a school shooting about 40 minutes away from where I live. Three students were shot yesterday at a high school during a drive-by shooting as they got out of school for the day. And I was thinking about it because in moments like that, especially in the context of the world we live in right now, where we're dealing with a pandemic and we're seeing the crisis in Afghanistan, there are wildfires and it feels like the world is on fire a lot of days. It would just feel much easier to let it go and just to think well, it's too big. We let it go too much. There's no hope and and stop trying. But I can't because I believe in a God of hope who provides hope to me and mandates that I have hope for this world. Because this God that I serve, I know he has a better vision for our world than kids getting shot at school, people being shot in their homes, all this suffering that we see. And so I have to have hope. Even in my better human judgment, um, 
I have hope. And so I have to do hard things to live that out. And that means having conversations that might feel utterly hopeless. And that doesn't mean I engage with every single person or every single question, because there are some people who don't really want to have a conversation. They just want to talk at you. And so I think there's a wisdom in seeing the difference there. And I I think that I've grown that muscle over the years. But the rationale behind understanding that your one conversation isn't going to solve gun violence is that it takes the pressure off. I can't tell you how many times I've had a conversation then it it didn't go so well, it went pretty poorly. And afterwards I thought, well, that's it. I ruined it. It can feel like it's all on your shoulders to have a really successful conversation and to change someone's mind right then and there. And then if that doesn't happen, you feel like a failure. You feel like you ruined it. And so to understand that the weight of the world is not on your shoulders it isn't on the conversation you're having with you know, your Uncle Joe at Thanksgiving that each of those conversations is just a starting point. It's just a place to begin to plant seeds, to offer new perspective into the world. And that one failed conversation isn't going to ruin it for everyone. It takes the pressure off and it makes it easier to try again next time. You know, when I was writing the book, I had a sticky note on my laptop that just said, your book will not end gun violence because I felt so much pressure to say all the perfect things, the things that would change someone's mind. And that can be paralyzing. It's hard to to work under those conditions. And so to remember that is really important to me, that I'm not like the hero in the story. I'm just walking in this path that God is laying out for me day by day. And yeah, so I think that's a really important truth to understand if, if you're someone who wants to engage in, in hard conversations about any topic that you care about, not just about gun violence. Well, you talk at one point in the early part of the second section of your book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, you talk about a conversation with a person who, at the end of the conversation, you realize that he basically comes down to say, my rights to own a gun are more important than your physical safety and mean more to me than any violence that was done against you. And it's from this conversation that you get this little nugget of wisdom that some people want to talk with you and some people want to talk at you. And you you mentioned that just a moment ago. I want to circle back and ask more about that. How have you learned to discern the difference? How are there markers that my listeners can learn from you about when you're in a conversation that has the possibility of being productive and when you should simply, again, to use a biblical phrase, shake the dust off of your feet and bless the person and move on. How do you know when someone wants to talk with you and when someone simply wants to talk at you? Yeah, I think like the first warning sign, especially I think now a lot of these conversations we engage with are in an online setting. And I think it's a little easier to manage in that way, even though that can also feel like impossible sometimes. But anytime someone is starting off with any sort of like name calling or disparaging comment, that's usually a sign that like that conversation isn't going to be fruitful. If someone is just offering statements, they're not asking questions, that is usually another sign because I think a lot of good conversations begin with asking questions. And so a lot of times I might try answering or saying one thing, asking a question. And usually I think you can tell in that first interchange if it's going to be good. And I think honestly, it is just a muscle you develop noticing 
how people respond, especially if it's something like a comment section, you can often see things that person might be saying to other people. And it's important to know, like, you don't owe anyone a conversation like that. So if someone is being unkind or cruel, saying mean things, name calling, you don't have to engage in that conversation. Because like we just said, no pressure. That one conversation, it's not going to end gun violence. So it's good to have boundaries within these conversations that we have. So yeah, I usually say, give it a try, unless it just seems like a really bad idea. Trust your gut, trust your intuition, and you'll start to see those things as you do it a little more. You also, at points in this second part of your book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, you also give some examples of when long and patient conversation does yield fruit, and maybe not one conversation, but a series of conversations over time. You talk about and even share the words of some people who were in one position with regard to gun control and gun ownership and who have shifted over time to understand or broaden their empathy for some of the the things that you're bringing to the conversation. Without getting into specifics, because I certainly want people to read the book and discover these for themselves. Can you tell us in some general terms what that's like when someone is moving from a position of resistance to understanding and empathy? Yeah, I have friends that I've known for a long time who, even after I was shot and started speaking out about gun violence, they were still really hardline on being pro-gun, being pro-Second Amendment you know, with no restriction. And as we would have conversations, I would think, oh, this is going nowhere. There's no hope for this. I'd be really discouraged. And I have two close friends who ultimately changed their mind and sent me messages or we had conversations. They're saying, I really see now what you're saying. I think you're right about this. I think I am evolving. I think I'm changing my mind. I get messages online from people who have followed me for a while and will tell me something you said is really what helped me change my mind. And then I'll see them start speaking out about gun violence. And that just makes it all worth it. It makes all of those, you know, nasty conversations, nasty emails I might get worth it because having these conversations on an interpersonal level with people that will then talk to their friends, talk to their families. And then those people might talk to their friends and their families. That's what really affects change. We look to the federal government and nationwide laws as signposts of whether or not we're actually making progress. But really, I think the signals that we're making progress is in our homes and talking to our friends and talking to our families and then at a local level and at a state level. That's really where we see a lot of change and we have to be okay kind of considering those smaller changes as being really important and really valuing those like we would maybe sweeping legislation coming out of Congress. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Taylor Schumann. She's a survivor of the April 2013 shooting at a college in Christiansburg, Virginia. We're talking today about her recent book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. One of the things that was really helpful for me about the the second part of your book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, is you did a very patient and thorough examination of some of the myths that we oftentimes will tell ourselves here in American culture about guns. And one 
huge one, one that I battle with in my own life here on the south side of Chicago is, oh, if I owned a gun, I would be more safe in my home. And I wonder if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about what that myth is like, where it comes from, and what some of the statistics in reality tell us about that myth. Yeah, so this is probably the most common thing you'll hear is that you need a gun to be safe and that a a gun will make you safe. And largely this kind of came out of a study that was done in the early 90s, I believe, that came out with these huge numbers about the amount of self-defensive gun use we see in the country every year, taking a look at things like home invasions and violent crimes and how often people use a gun in self-defense. Ultimately, the study was widely discredited. The numbers were basically impossible It just could not be true. But organizations like the NRA and the lawmakers latched onto these numbers and started talking about them. And the narrative became, you will need a gun for self-defense. Something bad will happen to you. You will need to defend yourself versus something bad could happen to you. You might be able to use a gun for self-defense. No, it became this inevitable scenario. And so people started buying guns for self-defense and absolutely believing they would have to use them. Realistically speaking, it's hard to have concrete numbers about self-defensive gun use, but it's nothing like that study talked about. What we see through research is that having a gun in your home makes your home less safe for you, for children especially, for people who suffer from mental illness, suicidal ideation, your risk for dying by firearm suicide or suicide in general goes up by three times just having a gun in the home. And that goes for everyone in the house, not just the person who is the gun owner. For children, the risk is especially high. About 22 kids a day are injured or killed in an unintentional shooting because they find a gun in their house or in their friend's house that's unlocked and loaded. So really what we know is that guns make you less safe. This is also especially true for women. Statistically, a woman is more likely to have her gun used on her to harm her than she is to use it in an act of self-defense. But, you know, it, it is hard to dispute that narrative that people have believed for a really long time, especially because for a lot of those people, having a gun makes them feel safe. So it's a way to kind of combat fear of the world by having a gun saying, oh, something bad comes, I can protect myself. So it's a very, it's a comforting thing for a lot of people. And so it's hard to get people to think differently about that. As we're coming towards the end of our conversation, I want to circle back to the question of trauma. We've talked in this conversation and also in your book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, you make it abundantly clear that even though your faith has transformed and has wavered, it has waxed and waned, you still have faith in God despite all of the violence that's been done to you and the lingering effects of that violence. But oftentimes in particularly more conservative religious circles, there's a narrative that we get about trauma that is simply, you just need to pray harder, and that's really all that you need is deeper faith. You make it very clear in your book that you didn't simply avail yourself of prayer, but also you availed yourself of physical therapy, you availed yourself of psychological therapy, at times pharmacological aids and support to neurochemistry. And I wonder if you could talk 
talk for those who maybe have heard this narrative that says simply pray harder and have deeper faith. How has your experience changed your perspective, and what would you say to someone who is struggling with that and whether or not they should utilize these other non-prayer means for their recovery? Yes, I think, gosh, this is one of the most harmful narratives out there, especially like within church culture, is that you should just have more faith, more hope, and everything will be okay and you'll feel better. The truth is that a lot of times things aren't okay because we have hope in Jesus. Things will ultimately be okay. But a lot of days here on earth, we have human bodies and we go through human suffering and we experience things here that are hard and difficult and we need help. And it is so good. It is so good to ask for help and to use the resources we have here on earth that that I believe God has ordained and, and put into our lives to have access to. You know, you wouldn't tell me who experienced a shooting, who had my hand mangled by this bullet, no one would tell me, oh, if you have more faith and you pray harder, I bet your hand will fix itself and it will be okay. You wouldn't say that to someone about their physical injury. So why do we say that to people who have been harmed emotionally and mentally? We have just as many options to help with those things as we do for physical injuries, though they are not as accessible as they should be in America. But I had the option to see a counselor, a wonderful counselor. And then I had the opportunity to see a psychologist who helped me understand the science behind trauma and how it affects our bodies. And that didn't decrease my faith in God. If anything, it increased my faith to understand how God made us and created us. How incredible the way our bodies were designed, both to protect us and to let us know, hey, I'm not okay. I need help. I need some support. Those things are so important. And I would encourage anyone who's walking in that path who doesn't feel encouraged to seek help or, or maybe they're feeling like it makes them weak. It is such an act of strength to ask someone to help. And there are so many people out there who would love to help and love to support you. And that God, even in really hard things that we walk through and even in suffering, God has abundant life for us. And I think that abundant life can come from therapy and medication if you need it. God is in and around all of those things too. And so definitely seek out those things because you do not have to live in pain. You do not have to live in trauma all the time. There is hope out there. There are ways to both honor God and and honor yourself. Well, Taylor Schumann, I'm painfully aware that listeners to our conversation, many of them are survivors of violence, that they are carrying trauma. And I am also aware of how much what you are saying, both in this conversation and in your book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, how much that's going to help some people to start their own journey of recovery, their own journey of hope. I recognize that especially taking the time to relive these events and to write them down was difficult. And I want to thank you for taking the time to communicate it and to do interviews like this. Thank you for taking the time to write the book, but also thank you especially for taking the time to talk to us about it today. Thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking today with Taylor Schumann. She's a survivor of the April 2013 shooting at a college in Christiansburg, Virginia. She's a writer and activist whose work has appeared in a number of publications. She's now a passionate advocate for gun control. She works to affect positive change. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. 
Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. <laughs>